Amen. Amazing worship there. All right, kids, if you would like to go to Children's Church, we have Ian and Brooke today that are standing in the back with their hands up so you can follow them to Kids Church. Oh, it's a great time that those kids have to worship as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, please take your Bible. Turn to the book of James. That's where we're at. We're doing a series called Faith Does. And I don't know if you remember this day, but August 11th, 2017, was a very eye-opening day in American history. That was a day when self-ascribed members of the alt-right, we had white supremacists, there were, um, you know, just a lot of neo-Nazis. All these people came and overran a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. This event shook our country with, with their overt displays of racism and hatred. And the event brought fear into the hearts of many minorities. Many people at the rally were fired from their careers. Uh, people to this day still misquote the president's response. The aftermath of this has been really ugly in the entire event, which is a complete tragedy. At the time, I was in Chicago. I was actually preparing to plant this church. Uh, the only people that I, I knew at the time that are still in this room were, were Ben and Becca. <laughs> but I remember something. I don't know if any of you also remember this. At that time, a lot of pastors came up to their pulpits, began the worship service, and they denounced racism. And we're going to see today, it's not my place to judge the heart of any pastor, but when I saw church after church do this, I just couldn't help but get this feeling of like, wait a minute, if you are saying sin is sin and you have to feel like you have to make a press conference about this almost and, and like make this public denunciation, what does that say about what you've been teaching for, for all, all these years? Like I just, I was personally something that I struggled with at the time because people should know that you're against sin and racism is sin full stop. So why would you have to feel like you have the need to say that? Uh, especially when you look around and you see in America that there's not much we agree on. But like the one thing that is like universally agreed on is that racism is wrong. It's horrible. It's sin. I mean, there's more people today that would say pedophilia is not a sin than there are people who would say that racism is not a sin. And that's really sad, but that's just the truth of where we're at. Uh, there's not much that we all agree on, but we do agree on that. And here's the thing that I started thinking about as I was looking at this passage today, because James 2, verse 1, right out of the gate says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So is racism more of a problem now than it was three years ago when that display happened in Charlottesville? Are there more racists in America? Has life gotten worse for people of color? The answers to these questions are very nuanced and complex. It's not a simple yes or no answer, but this we know for sure. Racism is still very much alive, and it's very destructive. And the way the media, the way the world would lead you to believe um, about you know, the, the issue of racism, it's got some truth to it. It may not be completely true. As long as we have fallen human hearts, 
people are going to look down on other people who are different than them. And it is far from a one-sided, one-race issue. And this is where it does get complicated. Many of the things that are trumpeted as anti-racist are actually racist on the other end of the spectrum. If, just think about this for a minute. If a black-owned business gets special treatment, what does that mean for the struggling Asian-owned business or the new upstart business that's owned by another person of, you know, of color or, or a white person? Are they now getting discriminated against? And is that a good solution? Or does history say that's going to just bring up more resentment and create another problem? Many of the people who are trying to stand up for the people that they deem as marginalized are doing something that is actually marginalizing the victim as they elevate themselves to be the protector, as the person that is going gonna, is gonna to now protect this individual who's incapable of, of protecting themselves. And so as they stand up for them, they demean them. It's just a total mess in our country right now. I think we all feel that. We all can see that. There's, entire, there's an entire school of thought called critical race theory that classifies everyone into two categories. You're either good or evil. You're either a victim or an oppressor. You're either suppressed or you are culpable to systemic racism. And it's not based on the content of your character. It's not based on your own personal responsibility. It's not on your identity in Jesus Christ. It's on your skin color or it's based on your wealth. My question is, does that sound anything like the gospel to you? Because that's completely contradictory to the gospel. Our country is getting wrecked with the seeds of disunity, shame, and divisiveness. Because you were either told that you're a victim, and if you don't agree, and if you don't align with the right side, that you are a disgrace, or you're said that your individuality doesn't matter in this area, and you're part of the collective problem. It's an ugly, destructive web that entirely misses the truth of hope and peace and unity that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. James tells us, and we saw this verse last week, James 1, 16 through 18, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That is, everyone who believes in Jesus. We have unity in Jesus Christ. And Galatians 3.28 says this, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your value, your worth, should never be based on your race or your socioeconomic class. The world wants to divide us, but God unites us. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He is the one who created us all. He's the giver of every good gift. And the greatest gift that he gave was his son, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate gift who provided a way for our sin. He gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. So if you know Jesus, your identity shouldn't be on your profession. It shouldn't be on your hobby. It shouldn't be on your skin color. We shouldn't be divided to the point that we can't speak into each other's lives. Because that sounds an awful lot like what their enemy would trick us into thinking we need to do. I can't speak into this person because I'm not the same as them. The Bible teaches us that we are one in Christ Jesus. So I've just put a lot on the table. And I, I know it's, it's quiet in here right now. Like, this is a sensitive topic. 
And a lot more could be said, but if you know our church, you know the only reason that we're starting with this is because I want to show you that racism is an individual sin that's part of a systemically broken heart, okay? We all have to get this straightened out before God. And today's passage addresses just this. The Bible always goes after the heart. This isn't the time or the place to address all the systemic ways that we can solve society's ills. The best thing that you and I can do is get our heart aligned with Jesus Christ. Because he said that when the tree is good, the fruit will be good. So we get our heart in tune to who God has called us to be and what he has done for us, we will then start living out in a way, living our lives in a way that James is talking about in this entire book. It's a genuine representation of our loving Savior. So we're going to the roots today. We're going to be talking about racism, and that's where this passage in James is so helpful. But racism isn't the only thing, because racism is just a part of partiality. Partiality also includes treating people with money better than people who don't have money. It in involves stepping over those who are below you and coddling up next to those people who can like help push you up the ladder and advance you. Partiality is what some trans translations say a respecter of persons. It's showing favoritism. It's making distinctions and value judgments, not based on the content of someone's character, but based on externals. Partiality is being a snob to those who you deem beneath you. And so much of the inequality and the disunity and the class warfare and the identity politics that weigh us down and hold us back revolve around this sin of partiality. So today, we are going way deeper than racism is wrong. All right, This isn't going to be a repeat of what you can hear on cable news. We're going into the root. It's a sin, and the problem is way uglier, uglier and way more prevalent than we care to admit. What you're going to see today is the real problem is our sin nature that judges others without mercy. That's the heart of the problem. We do that, we feel good about ourselves, but it denies the gospel and who we're called to be through Jesus Christ. As a follower of Jesus, we are to be different. That's, that, is, that is bedrock. We have to start changing and becoming more like Jesus and less like our old sinful selves. So we are to speak and to act as one, as this passage is going to say, speak and act as one who is under the law of liberty. This is what James has been talking about the entirety of the first chapter. And now we're in chapter 2, and he's stepping into this foundational issue that has some very practical applications about your heart. You can condemn racism and at the exact time, same time be just as guilty of, of hatred in your heart for those who are different than you. That's what we see today. It's always been that way, but it's becoming more obvious than ever. And if you want to stand out and rise above all that noise, you have to be, go beyond the, cell, the, the, the surface elementary level and cut to the heart where the root changes things. No one is going to truly change, and the next Charlottesville is only a matter of time until this happens. So the what today is show no partiality. That's verse 1. And the rest of what James has to say all the way down through verse 13 is the why. James is teaching us why you don't need to show any partiality, and along the way, he's going to highlight a better way. So 
let's read James 2, 1 through 13 together, and we'll talk through the three specific reasons why we are to show mercy rather than judgment. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who, are to be, those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. First point today is lift people up because showing partiality is antithetical to the life of Jesus. That's what we see in the first four verses. The word partiality here in our English translations is actually plural in the original Greek. So we need to be asking ourselves, do I show any partialities? Maybe it's not even an area that we've mentioned yet. Do I show preference or treat others with less respect because of their age? Or because of the region of the country that they're from? Or here's, here's, here's one, here's a big one, their political preferences. Okay, there's a lot of these things where we can show favorites and look on someone else, look down on them because they're different than you, that are a lot closer to racism than we care to admit because they all fund, fall under this umbrella of partiality. We can discriminate with people over how they dress or how they talk. James is not saying that you shouldn't see differences, okay? That would be weird and also impossible. We are going to see that. We're going to notice that. We don't need to pretend not to care about that, but the point of this is not to make value judgments on an external that you don't fully understand about that person. Don't degrade them uh, because they're different. Instead, lift them up. They have a heart and they have a soul. We aren't talking about being aware, being alert, making wise judgment calls. We're talking about showing favor to one and looking down on others. And this is why. James tells us right here in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. There's the word doxa in the original. It's translated glory. He's saying Jesus is the glorious one. It's an expression of his deity. And you are primarily to be for his glory and not your glory. As you hold your faith. This is the theme of the whole book this far. thus far. Don't misrepresent Jesus. 
Think about what he did for you. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You offered him nothing, but he came after you. When you were broken and in rebellion, we just sang about this, running the other way, living your life apart from him, the glorious one came for you. So Christian, he didn't write you off. He didn't turn away. Instead, he lifted you up out of the miry pit. That's what our Savior does for us. He redeemed you from the slavery of sin. So let's hold the faith and live like Jesus. And James gives, gives us an example of this. And this isn't like some hypothetical example that will probably never really happen. This is literally like an example for Sunday morning, like right now. Okay? This is what we're supposed to do. In, in the original here, the man wearing the gold ring is actually one word. I think it's fascinating that the Greeks had one word for this. They literally had a one word for the snobby guy who came in wearing gold rings looking down on other people. There was a name for that, okay? We, we have this long translation for it. But you have this guy, you have the shiny guy flaunting the gold rings, and you have the shabby clothing guy, all right? You have the one who has it all together and the one who's barely holding it together. These are the two people that walk into church. And James says, you better treat these people equally. The world doesn't treat these people equally, right? We realize that. It's a proven fact that attractive men and women get more of what they want than like less attractive people. It's just the way America works. Welcome to America, the world out there. Uh, the cute girl can get away with more mistakes in the job. Um, People that are better looking get promoted more often. There's a lot of stats that say this. Pretty people get out of more traffic violations, okay? Um, my wife, Julie, is very attractive. She's up in the kids right now. But, like, she's gotten out of almost every uh, pullover situation she's ever been in. She just smiles, and they give her a warning, right? Like, that doesn't happen to me. And, and if you're sitting here thinking, wow, I've only gotten a ticket. Like, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to judge you, okay? <laughs> not trying to judge you. It's not my place. We've all been there, though. You know what we're saying? Here's the thing. Jesus will treat you equally. He loves everyone the same, unlike the world. And when Jesus touches your life, this is one of the things that also has to change about you. Look again at verse 4. James is telling us that making distinctions and becoming judges with evil thoughts has no place in the life of someone who's been saved by the grace of God. If you are holding faith in the Lord Jesus, you can't show his character, a.k.a. his glory, if you're showing partiality, because God doesn't show partiality. That's why partiality is sin, because it's opposite of the nature and the character of God. Jesus saved you when you were desperate, so don't you dare turn around and start mistreating those who are different than you or underneath you in your mind. It's really as simple as that. We can't do that. If the church of Jesus Christ, and that is all of you individually, started treating people equally, if we lived in a way that reflected Jesus Christ, that means you wouldn't refuse anyone with mercy, with kindness, favor, or hospitality. You wouldn't judge people based on external differences. What would happen if the church did that? I think the church would start looking a lot more like the DMV, okay? But hang with me on this. Like, uh, what's the DMV like? Well, let's set aside like the being rude and the sending you away and like being strict. Like we're not talking about that part. The other part of the DMV is you have people from all walks of life there, right? 
everybody has to come in and get their driver's license from every socioeconomic class. And we as a church should have unity in Jesus Christ to the point that we have different people. And I love that about our church. I mean, our church isn't perfect here. We have plenty of room to grow. I, I see us making strides. But if we realize that we have unity in Jesus Christ, we have what we have today where we have a room with people with different races. We have, we have roofers. We have truckers. We have graphic designer, freelancers. I mean, we have coders. We have doctors. We have all kinds of different people in this room. And your, your friend circle of people who know Jesus should not act and talk and look exactly like you. We should be coming together under our unity in Jesus Christ, and that is a very beautiful thing. Now, if we're honest, this isn't easy. Some people are easy to love. Some people are hard to love. They're just not easy to love. But are we, and we're always going to naturally drift towards people who are like us. That's, that's natural. I'm not saying you shouldn't have close friends who are like you. But what this is saying is you shouldn't expend all your time, all your energy into people who are just your tight friends who are just like you. You should reach out to people who are different than you. And to pull that off, it's going to take time in the Word, where you let the truth renew your mind and change the way you think about people because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's only going to happen when you have a consistent walk with Jesus Christ. But that's the goal, right? So James has been talking about, to become more like Jesus Christ. When you show favoritism, when you, when you discriminate, you are living the antithesis of the way Jesus lived his life. So that's the first reason why. He came after Mary Magdalene, who was in dark mental bondage. He came after Zacchaeus, who was a miserably rich man, who was a hated tax collector. And he came after you. Okay? That's all of us in this room. And here's the second point. It flows directly from this one. Point number two, love, because when you dishonor the weak, you disregard God's grace for you. We cannot do that. Verses 5 and 7. Let's read those again. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Favoritism and discrimination, we've already talked about this, they flow in the opposite direction of the character of God. He doesn't turn from the broken. He turns towards them. That's what God does for us. And here's the truth about Christianity. It has always been a bottom-up faith. Christianity does not work very well when it is mandated from the top and it goes down to the people. Okay, what happens when you have that? You basically get what we saw last week in, in James 1. You get uh, impure, defiled religion because you're forcing some, something on someone. And they look at themselves as better than other people. And it's a really ugly version of, of false Christianity. Christianity is always about the weak, the poor in spirit, the people who realize they are not enough, the people who don't have it all together, and they realize I could become something different. I could become who God created me to be if I turn from my sin and I look to Jesus Christ. And he will rise you. He will rise you up. He will, he will take you from the bottom, and he will lift you up. Christianity is always bottom up because Jesus 
comes for those who realize they need the help. And when you do that, he takes us at our worst, takes us from the bottom, and he starts changing us from the inside out. And we go from being low to being an heir of his kingdom. It's a beautiful thing. Christianity did not start out as a faith for the cool kids. And if you were one of the cool kids, I am so glad you're here today, right? But here's the truth. Most of us in this room, we all have gifts, we all have talent, but we, before we knew Jesus Christ, that wasn't, that wasn't materialized. We hadn't, we hadn't even come close to our full potential. We all in this room are people who were needy. And when Jesus found us, he started changing us into someone who, who can magnify his name. Does anybody remember the days of uh, just going outside and playing sports in the neighborhood uh, with other kids, right? You know, people who are my age and older will definitely remember this. Uh, it, it, it's, it's great. You know, you get together, you, you, you go, you play a game, you pick teams. When I was in high school, um, I, I played football with a group of guys on Sunday afternoons. We played sandlot football, tackle football with no pads. It was pure danger. I still, like, have my middle finger is still bent crooked because I got tackled one time out there, and it messed up my whole sophomore season of basketball. But we, we would play, and we would pick teams. And it's, it's the way it would work is the two captains, the two best athletes, would pick people that they thought could help them win because the goal was to pick the best team to make a balanced game, right? And if you've ever been in that place where you're like, somebody else gets picked, somebody else gets picked, okay, I'm still standing here. I, you always feel bad for the last person to be picked, right? Honestly, if you think about it, there's more of us in that room than you would, you would ever imagine. The last people to be picked. And Jesus is the superstar. He's the one who takes you, puts you on his back, and carries you. He does all the work. And as you start playing the game with him, you don't even have any skills, but you actually, he starts raising your game. And eventually you get more confidence, and you, and you start building up, and you get better because you're doing these things you could have never done before because of Jesus and then he starts drawing up some plays for you. You know, he works you in to the offense, and you become someone that you were nothing like beforehand. That's the way Jesus works for us. So the scrub becomes the valuable player, and this is us. Jesus lifts us up from the very bottom. He turns you into someone who can achieve their full potential. It's bottom up. He raises us to new heights. And I have seen gruff, tough men who are addicted to the bottle, addicted to sexual immorality, completely transformed because of Jesus Christ. You're like, wait, what? Is that the same guy? He's wearing a clean shirt? He's shaved? He's smiling? He's laughing now? He's a father? Like, yeah, this guy loves Jesus more than he loves his truck now. And God has completely changed him. That's what God will do. He takes us from the bottom and he raises us up. That's the power of being chosen and called out by Jesus. He changes your identity, which, do you remember, will change your activity. Another angle here that I don't want you to misunderstand is that it's not wrong to have money. The Bible never condemns people for having wealth. Lot had wealth. Uh, Job had wealth. Abraham had wealth. Yeah, Lot had wealth, too. He didn't do a lot with it. But Josephus had wealth, and he, he, you know, he had an extra tomb. He buried the body of Jesus with it. It's okay to be shining and to have stuff. That is, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. 
You just have to make sure it doesn't stop you from helping the shabby guy, the guy who doesn't have it all together yet. Because if you follow God's plan for your life, you work hard for the glory of God. We still live in a country that is going to reward that hard work. He's going to lift you from the bottom up. So it's okay to have things. We don't have to pretend that, um, that we're poor to, to get favor of God. That's, that's ridiculous. That's wrong. Don't ever like, you know, take your favoritism from the, poor or from the rich people and then put it on the poor people. Because then you're discriminating against people who have wealth. And that's, that's not good either. There's ramifications both ways. You can't fix a problem by creating another problem. Okay? So don't pretend that your mom or dad bought you all your nice clothes. Don't hide the keys to your nice car. It's okay. God blesses. He's, that's the kind of God he is. We can, we can rejoice in that. The other thing that I want you to see here, not only are you to show no partiality to anyone, rich or poor, but in verse 6, James also brings up another very important point. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So here's something we all need to remember. The world system is never going to accept Jesus. And you can try to get as close to the world as possible, and it's kind of cringy when you see Christians do this. They, like, set aside this Christian ethic. They, you know, they ignore what the Bible says about, about sex before marriage, or you name it, go down the list on all these topics. And they try to just straddle that fence and get close to the world. Here's the truth. Just like, just like the world will never accept you, um, the, the blue checkmark brigade or, or the social justice warriors, they'll never accept you just for tolerating them. They want you to bow and champion their cause. That's the same way the world works. If, if you are following Jesus and you're living a real life that Jesus lived, the true Jesus is the enemy of the world. They don't like him. So you can pretend to get close to them. You can sit down, have coffee, sip those lattes. You can... You can just fold like a beach chair over and over again on every single issue, but at the end of the day, it's either cave to anti-Jesus or it's to follow the gospel. And if you don't do that, they are going to walk all over you, right? You see that in this, 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 this point. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you can straddle the fence because their true colors are hate, and that is only changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the only one who will change them. And, and I'm not saying we aren't supposed to go out in the world. Of course not. I'm not sp saying we, we're supposed to like huddle up in a bubble and, and you know, shield ourselves from the world. No, you're to live in the world. Be of the world. Uh, be in the world, excuse me, but not of the world. Right? So here's your application. Grace received should become grace extended. Verse 5 gives us the crucial why. Because God chose those who were poor in the world to become rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. You and I are the poor ones. We're the ones who received grace. We're that last kid to get chosen. And he gives us something we didn't deserve. So love the weak and extend grace. Hurt people are the ones that hurt people. And we were there too. But by the grace of God, he's the only one who changed us and took us out of that same place that we would have been in. Just that all the other hurting people are in. Grace received should, be, should become grace extended. 
So remember where you came from. Remember who lifted you up. And go and do likewise. That's what we're called to do. So we're talking here, again, you know, big picture, about how racism is wrong. It's sin. We're also talking about how partiality is so wrong. But James isn't just wagging his finger and saying the same thing that you would hear anybody else say. He is digging into the heart of the matter. Heart of the matter. Lift people up because showing partiality is antithetical to the life of Jesus. Love because when you dishonor the weak, you disregard God's grace for you. And the last point in verses 8 through 13 goes one step deeper, if you can even believe that. You're just going to have to see it for yourself, right? Let's read verses 8 through 13 to get the last reason why we should never show partiality. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, there are three laws that James talks about in this letter, okay? We saw the first law last week in James 1.25. The law of liberty came up there. And I love this about our church. Like, after the service, we don't just, you know, before or after the service, we don't just talk about sports or movies or music. Like, we have a church of people who talk about the Bible. And we pray for one another. And we talk about the passage. And I was talking with a couple of men in our church. And we had already put up the stage and we were still just talking. And one of the guys was like, you know, this is amazing that in the midst of, like, these Christians leaving their religion of Judaism, you know, they are now encouraged not to look at this old law, but to look at the law of liberty. Like, to look at the grace and truth of who Jesus is and, the, and how the Holy Spirit gives us freedom Jesus described it in, in the Gospels as walking in a pasture. You're walking in an open field where you're being led by the Holy Spirit. The law of liberty is very freeing. It's completely different from the old set of religion that they had come from, right? We were talking about that, and then another guy brought up the point that, like, these are, these are other men of their church. These are not me. This isn't me saying this. Like, they were showing more application of the sermon than I even had last week. But he was like, yeah, it's actually kind of ironic and sarcastic, where James is like, you know, you don't do this law. You don't do this religion anymore. Now, you want religion? You want law? Take the law of liberty. You see the irony there? Like, that's, that's, that's James for you. But we're talking about this, and the law of liberty is a beautiful thing. Right here in James 2, he's talking about the royal law. And he actually defines what the royal law is. These last six verses actually have the, all three different laws. The first one, the royal law, is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's where we get the golden rule. The golden rule is a Bible verse. It basically just comes directly from the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then in verse 10, verse 10 right here in James 2, we have the second law. It's, it's the, a reference to the Mosaic law. Whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point, he is guilty of all of it. This is not the New Testament perfect law of liberty. Look at verse 11. He's talking about 
being a transgressor of the law. So he's talking about that old law again. This is the law that could never save anyone. Uh, no one in the history of mankind has ever you know, done the law completely perfectly except Jesus Christ. And the purpose of the Old Testament law was to show us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. God designed the law to reveal this to us and to prove that we all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, we see this in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see that? Some translations there will say, instead of using the word guardian, they'll say school teacher or tutor. In the Greek, it's actually the word pedagogue. And if you know your, if you know your history, uh, a pedagogue was a very highly educated Greek slave. The Romans did the same type of thing where they would hire, these really rich aristocrats would hire a pedagogue for their children. And it was an all-comprehensive, immersive education. This, this person was highly educated, and they would just, like, shadow your kid. They would teach them about nutrition and art and history and science, philosophy. I mean, it was a, the, the top of the top education, right? The Bible is using that word pedagogue and saying that's what the law is. Like, the law is, the, is this something that God set in place to show you that you do not measure up to God. You were far from him. You fall short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. You need salvation. And it points you to the Messiah who fulfilled the law. Then in verse 12, he shows us of a better way. So we all know the law says that we are transgressors, the old law. We've all sinned. We have that, we have that on us. But with Jesus, that's no longer hanging over our heads. James 2.12 says, So speak and so act as those who will be judged under not the same old law, but the law of liberty. There's the third law again, right? This is the, this is the one that we saw back in 125. It's not the royal law. It's not the old covenant. It's the perfect law of liberty. We are all guilty before God's perfect righteous standard. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus took our punishment on the cross. He died for our sins and he rose again to new life. When he died, the veil was torn in two, which signified the passing of the old law, the old covenant, and the creation of a new law of liberty. And when Jesus rose again, he fulfilled the demands of a righteous God by dying for our sin, coming back to life. He ended the old covenant, and he created the new covenant. And this is what James is talking about right here. So speak and so act as one who is to be judged under the law of liberty. Do you see how far we've come from racism is bad? You know, it falls under partiality. Partiality is contrary to the nature of God. And furthermore, we have all broken the law of God. And we aren't to judge others based off of a law that we couldn't follow ourselves. We were all guilty under that old law. Thankfully, Jesus saved us and gives us freedom. And we live under a new law, a law of liberty. Our sin makes us lawbreakers under the old law. Jesus saved you from that condemnation. 
So judging others with God's standard of perfection that we were never able to keep ourselves is completely wrong. Who do we think we are? Romans 8 says it this way, Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, there it is again, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's, a con there's the correlation between the two different laws again. Verse 3 goes on to say, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You're a new person under a new law. You are free. Don't you dare go back into those old ways of judging people. That's, that's really the root of why racism should have no part in Christianity. Why partiality should have no part in our interactions with one another. Extend mercy because God has shown you mercy. You've probably heard people say, love the sinner, hate the sin. I said, I said that myself for years. But the more I look at the perfect law of liberty and I see what James is saying here, you know what I think is more accurate? Love the sinner, hate your own sin. <laughs> okay? Hate your own sin. That's what you need to be worrying about. You don't need to be worrying about them. God is going to take care of it. He sent Jesus to die for their sin. He's going to use you to convict them. But it's not our job to hang the law that we couldn't keep ourselves over someone else's head. We live in freedom, and we show love, and James is telling us, love the sinner, hate your own sin. You were guilty too, but by the blood of Jesus. Now speak and act who is one who is no longer under the law, but ironically now living under the law of liberty. And look at verse 13, the last verse. For judgment is without mercy the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is like a deep verse, okay? The, I, I could almost go on and on and on just about this verse. And I had so much to say about this, I had to cut it back. God freely grants us mercy when we ask him. What we've been seeing in this whole book, but he expects us to imitate him. So when we refuse or neglect to extend mercy to our fellow man, God withholds it from us. And, st and instead gives us judgment instead of mercy. That's, that's a pretty scary thought, right? Now remember, you have to realize the context of James. It's not just a, a, a passage that's talking about salvation, okay? He's talking to people who are already followers of Jesus. He's talking about your life of transforming to become more like Jesus. He's talking about, he's talking about the sanctification process, not, not justification. And this is really an echo of what Jesus gave in Matthew 18 with the parable of the unforgiving servant where he taught that exercising mercy is not an occasional setting aside of justice to demonstrate kindness. Exercising mercy is an overflow of someone who's received mercy from God. And this is really no different than what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment that you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Often people think they're showing mercy by abandoning justice. But mercy should be practiced with justice. These two things have to blend together. You have to apply both of them. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
in Matthew 7, Matthew 5, verse 7. So I hope you see what James is saying here. He's just flipping what Jesus said. He's saying, God is the judge of us all. It's not our job to judge, but if you don't show mercy, God won't show you mercy. Now, again, if you have confessed your sin and turned to Jesus Christ, he has already shown you mercy by saving you from the penalty of your sin. We're not talking about that. We're talking about now that you have a faith, now that you're walking with Jesus Christ, if you start judging other people, God's not going to show you the same mercy in your life when you commit those, those same types of sins. Because we will too. He's not talking about justification here. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about the present here and now and how you are living out your faith. And this is a truth that aligns with everything else we've already been learning from James. If you've been saved and received the mercy of God, your new identity should change your activity, right? The butterfly now has wings, and it should be flying. So extend mercy. If mercy has touched your heart, and you realize what kind of mercy he's shown to you, how could you then turn around and judge somebody? This last sentence is the best. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Worship team, you can come up right now. James is really good at making the confrontation sandwich. And those of you who work, you know, in a workplace with other people, I hope you're familiar with the confrontation sandwich. You know, you have to confront someone at work. They're, they're doing something that's really wrong, right? Um, so how do you start? You start off with some positives. Hey, you know what? I'm so glad that you bring this enthusiasm and passion to the team. That's how James started out. My beloved brothers, hey, we're living this faith. In Jesus Christ, he, he, he showed the unity that we have there at the beginning. And if you're at work and you really have to correct a problem, you start off soft with, with the positives and then you hit them with the, the truth. But hey, you know this one thing you're doing over here? Yeah, just stop doing that, okay? Don't do that because of this reason and this reason. And you know what? Seriously, thank you for your, for your valuable input. And we're so glad to have you part of the team. You are a huge contributor. Thank you. Okay, we got that straight? Yeah, great, great. That's the confrontation sandwich. Starts out easy, you get hit in the middle, and it ends with like, all right, I can do this. It ends positively. That's what James has done here. He has been doing this. We're in this together. He rifles off the reasons why they need to pick it up. And I, I think I've been convicted. I hope you have. It's, it's really easy to show partiality out there but we can see how, how wrong it can go and how corrupt it is at its core. And he closes with this line, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is never earned. It wouldn't be mercy if it was earned. It's a gift. Remember the, the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is God withholding something from you that you actually do deserve. Grace is God giving you something that you don't deserve. And if we're going to extend mercy in the process um, of living our life for Jesus Christ, and, you know, we're not going to do any of these nasty things that are involved with partiality, we have to look to the one who grants us mercy. That's how James closes it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He comes up with the good news. He slaps around a little bit. Now he's saying, look, do you know who I'm talking about? Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
It's not just what he's talking about here, it's who he is talking about. Mercy triumphed over judgment when the Mosaic law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of mercy. He established the law of liberty. Mercy triumphs over judgment because Jesus Christ gave his life for you. And he is changing you from being someone who used to judge people to now being someone who can show mercy because you've been shown mercy. So when you're tempted to show someone uh, that he's different than you with some contempt, or when you're tempted to look down on someone and show favor, that you like, you know, you like that person better. Remember, that is the complete antithesis of what Jesus did. Partiality, treating people differently, comes down to judgment without mercy, which is a direct contradiction to Christ's love on the cross. When you divide people, you foster resentment. When you unite people, you foster love. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what we're supposed to go out there and do with our lives to everyone that we come into contact with. Would you stand up? We're going to sing a response to this. Because again, this is only done when the Spirit is empowering us, when the Spirit is leading us, when He has changed the way we think and the way we feel. And we're not driven by our emotions anymore. We're driven by this overwhelming sense of, I have been given grace. I have received mercy. Let me now pour it out on others. Let's worship him with this song.